we have a rather superficial understanding of God's love. We uh, gaily talk about God's unconditional love, but I actually think we don't understand it very deeply. Most particularly, I don't think we understand the cost. Actually, I think that superficial understanding of God's love leaves us rather floundering. Leaves us floundering in our own lives as we try to exercise love and forgiveness and find ourselves unable, really, to uh, love and forgive as uh, we instinctively feel we ought. As a nation, the rising tide of uh, divorce and uh, of violence shows us that we don't live in a very forgiving society. And I think as Christians, very often we find it ourselves frustrated that we can't be that much different. I think the source of that is because we have never really deeply appreciated the love and forgiveness and mercy of God. In a way we're we're like um, blind people being presented uh, uh, with the, the crown jewels. We're told they're there, we're told they're that it's beautiful, but we just cannot reach out and appreciate the preciousness of God's love. We cannot enjoy it. Philip Yancey wrote a book, What's So Amazing About Grace, in which he tried to expound expound on the love of God, the unconditional love of God. He actually thought that that uh, might be the end of his writing career at the time because he thought that the legalistic forces within uh, evangelicalism would rise up against him and stop publishers publishing any more books. How wrong he was. Actually, the church had changed. It was very, very ready for this powerful exposition of God's unconditional love. But I wonder whether actually that book really plumbed the depths of what love and forgiveness is all about. I have a feeling actually that uh, we love to read such books as the fact that it um, has remained in the the Christian bestsellers list uh, for the seven years of its life, that book so far. but we haven't really deeply meditated on what it costs God to forgive us. In our our nation, there's a growing concern about superficiality amongst Christians, a growing observation that that those who profess faith seems to be um, uh, increasingly troubled by society's general ailments. They seem to wander in and out of, uh, uh, of churches and and, and really of any sort of uh, disciplined Christian life, they, the, the, the modern church seems increasingly unable to produce truly godly, truly God-intoxicated people. What, why is that? I want to suggest to you that actually Exodus chapters 32 to 34 might give us a clue as to how we need to grow 
if we are to be people who really have learned the lessons that God wants to teach us. Last week I said, in, in, in many senses, the story of the Exodus is complete. God has delivered his people from Egypt. They, he has set them on the path to the promised land. He has visited them at Mount Sinai. He has given them laws to live by. And then he has, ha, has arranged to dwell in their midst personally. He's given instructions for that tabernacle to be built so that he can dwell at the heart of his people. And in many ways, that is the complete story. That is the complete story for Christians. Deliverance at the cost of those lamb sacrifices, anticipating Jesus. Being set on the road to the promised land, which is heaven. Being given laws uh, in order to live lives which glorify God and being given uh, the assurance that God dwells in our midst. But in Exodus 32, there is a problem. The problem, actually, is one which hits so many Christians in their lives. Israel betrays God. Look at chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. The next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings, presented fellowship offerings and afterwards sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. In actual fact, Aaron doesn't see himself as abandoning God here. In verse 5, he makes it specifically plain that they are going to celebrate a festival to the Lord using the personal name of God, Yahweh. He seems to be responding, you see, to this, this cultural pressure amongst the people which was more overtly idolatrous. The people say in verse 1, make us gods. But Aaron seems to be uh, trying, as the best diplomats do, to find a middle way. Still worshipping Yahweh, but doing it according to the conventions and the cultures around him. A nice calf idol seems to be a good solution, he thinks. But sadly though, once the people are in the driving seat, once the people are saying how they want to worship God, it is just a few short steps to a much, a much more overt sin. When uh, we're told they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry, uh, um, we're not seeing the description of uh, the sinful practice of having a good time. God's not against having a good time. That's a description of an orgy. How is this God whom we hear so much about, who loves us and is faithful and loves to forgive, how is 
he going to respond to this? That's not a historical question, it's not an academic question, it is a key question for my life when I fail, and I don't doubt for yours. I don't think we probe that question very, very deeply. I think we just paper over the cracks. I think we just put a, a, a wash, a whitewash over the walls. I think we just say, oh, God's a God of unconditional love. God's a God who loves to forgive. Jesus died on the cross for all of your sins. It's okay. We see ourselves as the prodigal son with the father waiting just over the horizon with his arms open and all we need to do is trip along back to uh, that loving God and he will embrace us and we'll get a party out of it. But actually as we trip along back to God so easily Christians find he doesn't feel that we're that close to God we find ourselves wandering off again and again and again. So finally some give up. I don't think, you see, we have engaged with the costliness and the complexity in the heart of God as he struggles to forgive us. And the rest of Exodus chapter 32 to 34 gives us a flavour of that. It is designed to help us to see into the very heart of who God is. It actually functions as a conversation between God and Moses, interspersed by some periods of, of action. And on the surface of it, it reads as if there is an angry God here and a Moses who is somehow morally superior to God, sort of persuading this wrathful God to calm down. But I think that would be to misunderstand these chapters. See, God's actually inviting Moses to intercede on behalf of these people. Verse 10 uh, reads uh, in this way, um, Leave me alone, says God, that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. It's, it's, it's a bit like God sort of saying, you know, hold me back, Moses, hold me back. He wants to express his anger. Indeed, he must express his anger. But he knows as well that he must restrain his anger. And that, that, that anger and compassion is swirling around in God's heart like a, like a mighty maelstrom. And he can only express that if he has, has another personality as a foil. So he invites Moses to engage in conversation with him. In many ways it anticipates the fact that God could only finally express his love and his justice in its fullest form by, by actually revealing himself in the form of two personalities, God the Father, God the Son. And then somehow, as we saw God as two persons in one, God could finally show us quite what is going on in his heart. But meantime, until that day, he must make do with Moses. God um, 
expresses then over these couple of chapters his fury and his love. Let's try to understand this, uh, this conversation. I've left my little pointer down there. I wonder whether someone could give it to me. Let's try and understand the, the conversation. Actually just looking at three phases of the conversation that there are between um, uh, God and Moses. You can see all three there, there as they unfold in chapters uh, 32 to 34. The first phase of the conversation is found in verses 10 to 14 and it is very much about God's anger. God's first and appropriate sin then, as we saw in verse 10, is anger. Anger which burns. Anger which destroys. God seems almost to tempt Moses into accepting that, uh, that uh, uh, his anger is his, uh, um, is his only response by saying in verse 10, I will destroy them and I will make you into a great nation. Singular. <coughs> I'm not angry with you, Moses, yet, at least. Let me destroy them. But Moses will not accept that. Moses reminds God of his saving grace. He reminds him of his reputation in the world. And most of all, he, he reminds God of his promises made to their ancestors. Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Wouldn't that be foolish, God, for you to show compassion then and not now? Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. After all, didn't you say that your great work of deliverance, God, was so that they would know that I am the Lord? And now they will think, well, you're just... Uh, miserable, angry, vicious God. Remember, says Moses, the desire, uh, um, uh, your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. You said to Abraham, God, I swear by myself because there is nothing greater that he could swear by that I will make you into a great nation. Are you going to break that solemn oath of yours, God? And God relents. Verse 14, The Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. God's not saying, Oh yes, slipped my mind, Moses. Terribly sorry, I'll have to change it. This is, that's not how God works. This is God interacting with the competing demands of his holiness. He must be angry, but he must as well be true to himself and true to his promises. And those internal tensions in, in God himself are being played out in this conversation. When God relents, it doesn't mean either that he will not come in judgment at all. Moses now returns down 
the mountain from his conversation with God. Full of the wrath of God, he smashes the tablets of stone on the ground. He seizes this calf, which was probably actually a wooden calf covered in gold leaf, because he then burns it. He takes the ashes from, uh, from that flame, uh, from that fire, mixes them in water and makes them drink that water because they must acknowledge the horror of that sin that they have, uh, uh, they have done. And Aaron's extraordinary in the lame excuses he comes, comes up with. First of all, he says, the people can't help it, it's in their nature, verse 22. Don't be angry, my lord, Aaron said, <coughs> you know how prone these people are to evil. How often have we heard that? We're only human. And then he says, uh, they made me do it, Moses, verse 23. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Well, actually, they made, to do it, made me do it. And actually, it's a bit your fault, Moses. Where were you? And then he says, this sin just happened, verse 24. So I told them, whoever has any jewellery, take it, gold jewellery, take it off. They gave, it, it gave me the gold, I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. You know, that's about as, about as convincing as a child caught with his hand in the biscuit tin saying, oh, it just fell off the shelf, mummy. And anyway, he made me do it. No, such lame excuses, such self-justification will not get us off the hook. God's anger must be uh, expressed. First there is a call to repentance, verse 26. So Moses stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites uh, rallied to him. And then amongst those who have not chosen the Lord, 3,000 are executed. I mean, is this just the nasty, vitriolic God of the Old Testament? But Jesus himself said to people listening to him, unless you repent, you too will perish. Let, let us be absolutely crystal clear. Unrepentant, serious sin is not guaranteed to be forgiven. Though we may have been baptised, though we may uh, be sitting here when we could be going and doing something else, though we may know the Bible backwards, though we may know all the latest hymns and be well attuned to, to, to the latest worship practices, though we may have heard the best preachers in the country, if we in our hearts are unrepentant, we cannot... Uh, Accept, we cannot expect God to forgive us. There can be no assurance of forgiveness. We bandy around this term unconditional love far, far too freely. Seems to me there are conditions. 
But the conversation is not ended. Because on its, on it, on its own, frankly, Moses perhaps senses that they will all be wiped out. So the conversation starts again in chapter, at the end of chapter 32. Now it's about God's presence. Moses says the most extraordinary thing, verse 31 of uh, chapter 32. Moses went back to the, to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. He says, I'd rather die for the sins of these people than to see myself saved and them, them condemned. Isn't that extraordinary anticipation of Jesus? Who did die for the sins of the people. Jesus was God the Son. We'll see more of what that means in a moment. But for now, uh, Moses is somehow in himself expressing something that ultimately we learn is in the heart of God. Because God ultimately said, I would rather die than visit my punishment on these people. God though here just reaffirms in verse 34 that punishment there will be when the day comes. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of. My angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. But actually, the, the conversation now turns to, to this subject of God's presence. Whether God himself is going to stay with these people. Chapter 33, verses 2 and, and 3. God says, I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on, uh, on the way. I'm going to keep some aspects of my promise, says God, to take you to the promised land, but I'm not going to keep this central aspect of my promise to be with you. because I might destroy you. And that is clearly not enough. The justice of God on its own was not enough. God somehow um, working out most of his purposes for his people but without his presence is not enough. The people uh, take off their ornaments, they mourn because God will not go with them. And Moses comes back after meeting with God um, face to face or uh, in the tent of meeting. Moses comes back to his conversation with God again and again he's saying, it's not good enough God. I need more. First of all, 
he says, he himself cannot lead them if God is not with them. Verse 14 of uh, chapter 33. The Lord, Lord replies to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Yes. Now it's very important that we see that is a promise only for Moses. My presence will go with you, Moses. I will give you rest, Moses. And with extraordinary audacity, Moses again says, that is not enough. He will not have it. Verse 15. Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? You've got to come with us, God. There's got to be a way for us to be forgiven. There's got to be a way for us to live in your presence, God. Nothing less will do. And once again, God is persuaded. Okay, Moses, he says. I will do it. I'll do it, he says, because I'm pleased with you. I'll do it because of the relationship I had with you, Moses. I will do it, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. And Moses is still not content. It is quite extraordinary his audacity as he meets with God because now it seems God has given him everything that he needs everything that he's asked for. But he says, no, I want more, God. Actually, I want to know the, 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 the thing that will really help me know you and us know you. I want to see your glory. Verse 18. Moses said, now show me your glory. I want to see your true brightness. I want to see your true solid reality. I want to see who you are, God. And God, in a qualified way, in a controlled way, lets that happen. He takes Moses to a cleft in the rock. He tells him that he will pass by Moses and put his hand over that cleft of the rock so that, so that Moses can't see his face. But then as he passes by, he will lift his hand off and Moses will at least see, see his back. And most importantly, when it happens, he will hear God describe himself. Verse 6 of chapter 34. God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children 
and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. This is who God really is. This is how we can see God's glory by discovering his personality, by discovering what is going on in the heart of God. He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with love and faithfulness. But he says, I am also just. I will not let the guilty go unpunished. Indeed, there is a sense in which he holds people collectively responsible. He says, I will punish the sons for the sins of the fathers down to the third or the fourth generation. There is a collective responsibility, Israel, that you hold before me. And I will make sure that punishment happens. And in the Old Testament, that revelation of God's character as both compassionate and just actually never gets fully resolved. Only in the New Testament that we start to see how God could hold those two contradictory things in his heart, in his personality and not explode. In John chapter 1, John tells us the law was given through Moses but Love and faithfulness, those two words that uh, are here to describe God, abounding in love and faithfulness. But love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. John says, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, God the Son, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And Jesus, says John, shows God's glory in an extraordinary new way by dying on the cross. Where God's determination that sin must be punished and God's overflowing love and faithfulness find their final resolution as a son does pay for the sins of the fathers, as the son, God the son, pays for the sins of his people. Is that unconditional love? Well, it's unconditional in the sense that there is nothing we can do to pay for our own sins but simply to ask. But there is a condition attached. We must repent. We must turn. 
we must, insofar as we have the capacity, commit ourselves to seeing the glory of God in the cross of Christ. Now I think you see that we just haven't really grasped so often the depth of what that means. Many of us have heard this sort of explanation many times before. Maybe we just haven't seen the depth of God's emotional reaction to our sin. Forgiveness is deeply, deeply costly to God. It costs the life of his son, Jesus Christ. And only when we see that can we be confident God will now go with us. Not at a distance, but his presence with us because we have seen his glory. Now scientists tell us that uh, matter and antimatter cannot coexist and if they come together, just the, just the smallest, tiniest little bit, if they come together, there is the most phenomenal explosion. Well, God holds in his heart the deep reservoirs of the matter of his love and the antimatter of his justice. And we see just a little of the explosion that those two cause as we see God dealing with those two things on the cross. As God the Son is, is, is wrenched from his Father as he pays for our sin. As God punishes God Now at the cross, when Jesus died, there was darkness, there was an earthquake. Those were just the faint rumblings of the most colossal act of forgiveness that eternity has ever seen. In which God chose to absorb within himself his furious wrath and his inexhaustible love. find a resolution for it. Now in this book of Exodus we find the tabernacle described twice. Once before Exodus 32 to 34 we find a long description of how they are to build the tabernacle. And then there is uh, this terrible problem of Exodus 32 to 34 and then afterwards we find after Moses has seen God's glory and God has committed to being present with them we find an equally long description of them actually building the tabernacle because then 
it is complete. Now that we know, at least in germinal form, how God might continue to go with us, now we can be promised of his presence amongst us. I do think it is a real problem so often we have such a superficial understanding the enormous cost to God of keeping his presence with us yes he stays with us when we sin but it cost him his life This is the glory of God. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave guilt unpunished. He punishes the Son and for the sin of us.